came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, radio waves. Astrophys brings the news, arrays and dishes give different views, I get confused. Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. My name is Brendan O'Brien. And today is Friday the 17th of August 2018. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And in this episode we've got a fabulous feature interview with Dr. Shi Dai, a CSIRO research astrophysicist who studies pulsar timing, pulsar emission properties and mechanisms, gravitational wave research, scintillation studies and is searching for a new class of pulsar. And that's followed by our regular feature with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave when he tells us what's up doc. What's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks and he takes us on a tangent. And then we'll finish up this episode with some astro news highlights where we bring you the latest news in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So right now we'll cross over to Sydney in Australia to speak with Dr. Shi Dai. Hello Shi. Hi Brendan, hi, how are you? Very well, thank you. It's great to be speaking with you. Today we are speaking with a fabulous radio astronomer Dr. Shi Dai, who works with the CAS Pulsar Group, which is part of the Australian Telescope National Facility, a division of CSIRO Astronomy and Space Science, CAS. He researches many aspects of pulsar astronomy, including pulsar timing, pulsar emission properties and mechanisms, gravitational wave research, scintillation studies and pulsar searching. She uses the Parkes Radio Telescope for the majority of his pulsar research and he's on a very exciting quest, but we'll hear about that a bit later. Dr. Shi Dai has his doctorate in radio astronomy from Peking University, a major Chinese research university located in Beijing, and has recently been awarded the coveted Bolton Fellowship to continue his research which he takes up later this year. Meanwhile, Shi, can you tell us about growing up in China? And please, tell us how you became interested in science and space in the first place, and did you have dark skies where you lived? Sure. So I guess my story is really similar to uh, many others. So I think when I was a kid, I was really interested in the stars, basically, because they are so different compared with what we normally see during the day. And I was always interested in what's going on. What's 
controlling what's what's happening. So that's I think how I got into、uh, science and astronomy in the first place. And so I w- was born in southwest China. I grew up mainly in the city, so there's not really like dark skies, but、yeah. but it's mountain areas, so it's really quiet. So it's really good for astronomy, especially for radio astronomy, because we don't care about clouds and rings. <laughs> okay, please tell us a little about your early ambitions, and did those ambitions change? Yeah, so I think when I was really young, I always want to understand. The universe. I think that's my ambition in the first place to understand what's going on and all the physical laws of the universe. And I have to say that、uh, this ambition did、uh, change a bit. So I think now I, I really、uh, enjoy do a little bit interest in science or exciting science, so that we can help people、uh, understand the fully a small part of our universe. Okay, thanks, Shi. Can you tell us a little about your early university studies and your first degree? Sure. So during my undergraduate, I actually studied physics. So I was really into physics at that at that time. So I got、uh, my degree,、uh, bachelor's degree in physics from Peking University. Very good, and obviously a quest for knowledge because you went on to do your doctorate. So, what inspired you to go on to do your PhD, and can you tell us how you came to be involved with the CSIRO and how you made that big move to Australia? Yeah, so it seems to me that it's quite natural to go on to do my PhD because I always want to、uh, keep doing physics and astronomy because I really like it and enjoy it. Yeah, I think that's why. I chose to keep going. In terms of、uh, CSIRO, actually, I first came to Australia in 2011, and for the radio school at Parks. Yep. And before that, I didn't actually know much about radio astronomy, but the radio school was really nice, and I really enjoyed. And after that, I decided to do radio astronomy, and then I was co-supervised by. Dr. George Hobbs at、yep. CSRO. After I finished my PhD, I got a few options, but I decided to move to Australia and continue working at CSRO. Thank you very much. That's fabulous. Now, can you tell us a bit about your work studying pulsars? We understand from previous episodes that pulsars are rapidly spinning neutron stars that emit powerful beams of radio waves. First discovered by Dame Jocelyn Balburnell, who was recently in Australia and visited the Parks Dish, to date a couple of thousand pulsars have been discovered, and you've gone hunting with radio telescopes to discover new pulsars in the Greater Magellanic Cloud. Can you describe where is the best place to look for these new pulsars? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that's. The question all the pulsar astronomers are actually now thinking. So I think there are a few good places to look for pulsars. For example, we know that pulsars are evolved from from massive stars. So obviously, the the galactic plane is one of the best places to to look for pulsars because most、uh, massive stars are on the galactic plane.、Yep. But we do have other 
options. For example, uh, we have star clusters called global clusters, where we have really dense population of stars. So we also uh, expect lots of neutron stars in these uh, global clusters, and also the galactic center, obviously. Fantastic. Okay, thanks, Shu. Now, we understand that sometimes researchers have publications pending where everything is embargoed in that pre-publication period. But can you tell us a little about your special quest that you're on to find that elusive pulsar black hole binary system? What makes you understand that such systems are out there to be found? Sure. So actually, I cannot prove that uh, there are pulsars and black hole binary system at the moment because we haven't found any yet. But I think we do have good reasons to search for such kind of uh, very extreme uh, systems. For example, as I talked about global clusters, in these global clusters we have lots of stars and we also expect there are black holes in these global clusters. So it is possible that black holes in global clusters, they can capture neutron stars when neutron stars uh, move close to these black holes. So this will give us uh, pulsar black hole systems. And in terms of science, uh, these systems are extremely interesting because pulsars are very stable clocks, basically. So by observing pulsars, we can really study black holes, which is essentially black and uh, really hard to observe. And this will let us study gravity series in very strong gravitational field, which is really fundamental and really interesting and exciting. Fantastic. That's beautiful. Now, if that's the case... What signatures do you expect to find from a pulsar black hole system that would be different from, say, a simple binary pulsar? Yeah, that's a really good question. I guess first talk about isolated pulsars. So for isolated pulsars, we know that they are basically like a lighthouse. So when the radiation beam pointing towards us, uh, we receive a pulse from from the pulsar. And the, the spinning of uh, pulsars are really stable. So basically, when we observe isolated pulsars, we observe periodic signals. Yep. So they are really stable, and they are easy to find. However, if pulsars are in binaries, for example, pulsars in a binary with a uh, uh, main sequence star or wide off, you will expect that the periodic signal from the pulsar will be doppler shifted because of the motion of the pulsar around the binary. Oh, wow. So this is uh, very similar to, for example, uh, when a car is uh, coming towards you, you can actually feel like the frequency of the signal is increasing. So for pulsars in binaries, this means when we observe a pulsar at different orbital phase of their orbit, yep. the period of the pulsar is actually going to be different. And if the binary is really close, and during our observing, the period of the pulsar will keep changing, which makes the finding of the system really hard. And then if you imagine there's a pulsar around the black hole, the orbit will be extremely compact so the motion of the pulsar will be so fast and the signal from the the pulsar will be 
highly modulated by the uh, the orbital period, which makes it really difficult to find. And I think that's the, the main difference. Wow, you've set yourself an incredible challenge, but that sounds a beautiful combination of theory and practice. So thank you. Yes, um, exactly. Now, most research these days is done in large collaborative teams. Can you tell us about the current teams you're working with and how it's all going, please? Sure. So currently, I'm in Australia, so working with the Pulsar group at CSRO Astronomy and Space Science. Yep. Um, so our group, well, we mainly use the Parkes radio telescope, and we do lots of science about pulsars. We search for pulsars. We do pulsar timing, and um, we use pulsars as tools to study, for example, the interstellar medium yep. uh, to detect gravitational waves and so on. So it's lots of fun and uh, lots of really uh, exciting science. That's fantastic. Now, apart from your work with the iconic 64-metre Parkes dish, you're also involved with some of the largest instruments on the planet. Can you tell us about your collaborations with the SKA, the Square Kilometre Array, and the 500-metre Fast dish in China? Sure. So uh, we do have close collaborations with, I think, both the the SKA team and also the FAST team. And as you might know that the uh, low-frequency part of the SKA will be built in Australia in the future. So I was actually visiting the SKA organization in Manchester, uh, UK, uh, a couple of months ago. And we had lots of discussions on the science we can do with SKA in the future. And how to search for pulsars and uh, on what kind of pulsars we will be able to find with SKA in the future. And for the 500 meters te- uh, telescope in, in China, so uh, Parks and FAST, we are actually working together. So uh, with Parks, currently we are trying to, for example, confirm uh, pulsar candidates uh, found by the FAST telescope uh, because the FAST telescope is still a new telescope and for example the timing system of fast is not very stable at the moment so parks really is very useful uh, for confirming pulsar candidates Uh, and yeah we work a lot together that's sensational so thank you she now the microphone is all yours and you have the opportunity to give us your favorite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in education, in equity, in outreach, our quest for knowledge or space. The mic's all yours. Thanks. So, yeah, personally, I really feel like now it's really exciting, I mean, for astronomy. Particularly, I'm really excited about, for example, the computer science or the AI and new technologies around, which can really help us to do really better astronomy. So I think for people interested in astronomy, I think we just stay tuned. And if you are experts on, for example, computer science, we will really like to uh, work with you because the powerful and uh, new technologies uh, developed for computing and, uh, and others 
will really change our way of astronomy studies, and I think will be uh, really important in the future. I think that's definitely the future of, of radio astronomy. Yes, that's an incredible challenge. We used to talk about gigabytes, but now these powerful instruments are pulling down terabytes per second or exabytes per day, a huge amount of data, and humans just can't look at it all. Yeah, yes, I think that's true. And also, with new technologies, we can really do what we couldn't in the past. So there are more opportunities and more uh, possibilities. Very exciting time. So now we warmly invite our listeners to follow Dr. Shidai's career. And is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future, Shi? Any events or instruments or papers to watch out for? Yes, I think in the near future, one of the, I think, exciting things well, it's actually the old Parkes telescope because we just installed a new receiver system on the Parkes telescope, which is the ultra-wideband receiver system. And we're actually, at the moment, commissioning the, the new system. And with the new system, we will have a bandwidth many times larger than what we had before. And I think that will keep the Parkes telescope really competitive in the next decade. And also, I believe there will be new exciting science coming out from parks. So I really would like to invite everyone to actually uh, uh, follow the progress of what we are doing with parks. We certainly are here. And personally, I'm really looking forward to going up to parks in early October and having a really good look and talking to some of the people up there. So that's something that's in my calendar. I'm very excited about that. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Shi Dai, Pulsar researcher extraordinaire and compulsive Arsenal fan. I'm sorry we didn't have time to talk about that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Let's cross to Adelaide now to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up, Doc. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Tell us, what's up, Doc? What's up in the skies for the next fortnight? We've got four bright planets in the sky, of which three are brighter than magnitude minus two, which for those who are not used to the magnitude scale, it means they're very bright. Uh, Venus being the brightest at around about magnitude minus 4.5. Now, during the next fortnight, the moon is going to visit all the bright planets and the stars in the evening sky and it will progressively climb the ladder of the sky making a rather excellent view as it goes. Uh, on the 14th the crescent moon will be just below Venus, on the 15th it will be just above Venus between Venus and Speaker and then on the 17th it will be close to uh, the waxing moon will be close to Jupiter then on the 21st the uh, waxing moon will be close to uh, Saturn and finally, on the 23rd, the, the waxing moon is now close to Mars. So you'll see from night to night, the moon will climb the ecliptic, passing uh, the brightest objects in the sky. And, and that will be really nice to watch. 
you may want to watch Venus over the coming weeks as Venus comes closer to the bright star speaker. Speaker is the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo the Virgin. And as we move through the month, Venus will be coming closer and closer to speaker. And by the end of the month, uh, it will look quite good. But over the next fortnight, you'll see it come closer and closer. And you may want to, for example, uh, do some astrophotography following Venus has moved towards speaker and you can get generated overlays showing Venus getting closer and closer. And that would, that's quite a nice little astrophotography project. And if you've got a, a program like Deep Sky Stacker, Deep Sky Stacker will uh, not only stack the um, stars on each other, but it will also compensate for the slight changes in the location of the stars from night to night as uh, they get lower towards the horizon. So it can get a nice little astrophotography uh, project out of that. And, and while Venus is moving closer towards Speaker, uh, up in the uh, sky, Jupiter is moving closer to Zubil Dubli, the uh, brightest star in the constellation of Libra. Yep. Now, it's been very close to uh, Zubil Dubli for some time. So you probably are used to looking up and seeing Jupiter and then a sort of a brightish star not very far away, about a finger width away. Jupiter is still moving slowly towards it. It'll be closest from the 15th to the 19th. If you're a telescope fan, Jupiter's looking really good in the telescope. It's, it's well past opposition, but it's still big, it's still bright. The Great Red Spot, which in the past uh, has been faded and has become uh, a bit paler, has been uh, darkening again recently, so it should be quite easy to pick up in even small telescopes. And we've got some great satellite events where the moons and their shadows move across uh, the face of Jupiter or then blink out as they enter into Jupiter's shadow. So these are all uh, fun things you can do from night to night or during the course of the night if you have a, a, even a, a, a small or modest telescope. Of course, you've got one of these fantastically uh, huge, amazing telescopes. I can see the envious of you that you should be out watching right now. That's excellent. And um, Saturn, Saturn's now within binocular distance of the Tripitan and Lagoon nebulas and is coming closer. Um, again, as you follow it from uh, day to day, be, unlike Venus, which is moving at a fair clip, and, and Jupiter, which is just crawling along, Saturn really crawls. So you've got lots of time to do some astrophotography, getting uh, uh, wide field images, getting Saturn close to these two iconic nebula, Lagoon and Tripitan nebula. Uh, and it's also uh, close to a number of very faint globular clusters. So if you do some nice long exposures, you'll be able to pull out some nice detail. Of course, at even modest telescopes, you'll be able to see Saturn's rings. And it, no matter how often you look at Saturn and its rings, they're always <laughs> magnificent. They're always beautiful to watch. Indeed. So that'd be yep. uh, great fun to have a look at. Fabulous. And if we move down to Mars, Mars is having been at uh, fairly uh, still for a while, is now beginning to move as Earth overtakes it in its orbit. Mars is beginning to uh, shrink noticeably uh, over the fortnight. However, it's still a very good telescopic object. And the good news is that the giant dust storm on Mars, which has been obscuring our view, is beginning to die down. And, and hopefully, hopefully over the next fortnight, we'll be able to see some decent markings and the, and the polar cap. And hopefully also opportunity will phone home. And for people like me that are currently just using 
binoculars or naked eye, Mars is still looking fabulous on the western horizon if you get up before sunrise in the morning. Indeed. Venus, of course, sets not long after uh, astronomical twilight, although it's, it's quite prominent for, for some time. Jupiter's setting around about uh, 1 o'clock in the morning. Saturn sets in the early morning, and Mars is, is uh, still visible uh, when you get up early in the morning. So, sadly, the morning skies are only uh, graced really by Mars. Uh, Mercury is back in the morning skies, but it is so deep in the twilight that you really don't have a chance to see it, even when uh, it's highest above the horizon by the end of the fortnight. It's really just still in the, in the twilight glow and very difficult to see. So not much uh, of a chance to see Mercury this time round. However, be, be ready for its uh, next uh, um, evening uh, appearance in September. Just giving their heads up because once again we'll have all five bright planets visible in the uh, in, in the uh, evening sky, and it'll be a little bit more dramatic. But we'll talk about that more when the time comes. Very good. Uh, do you have a tangent for us this weekend? Yes. Today, the Parker Solar Probe was uh, was launched. Yep. Uh, this uh, probe will hurtle closer to the sun than any other uh, space. And uh, it, it's it's a complicated uh, manoeuvre where it uses a slingshot from Venus to actually lose energy so it can fall further into the sun. Uh, we should get our first samplings of the uh, inner solar atmosphere in December of this year before a lot more complicated loops and it moves further into its ultimately four and a half solar diameters away from the sun itself, putting it deep in the solar atmosphere. Uh, although it uh, is uh, billed as uh, the spacecraft touching the sun, uh, several comets come in much closer to uh, the sun than the Parker Solar Probe uh, will. Uh, most, uh, all, virtually all of them disintegrate almost immediately, but uh, uh, the, the most recent comet Lovejoy came within a solar diameter of the sun, survived for a, a few days before it broke up, and uh, our satellite images of this event were absolutely spectacular. So this is uh, something to watch. Uh, you may be interested to know, however, that uh, an Australian amateur, Paul Russell, captured an image of uh, the launch of the Parker Solar Probe uh, as it moved across the Queensland sky. There was a what looks to be a fuel dump as part of the launch separation process, as one of the stages was uh, jettisoned. And so this is marvellous photograph of uh, what looks to be uh, three jets in the sky uh, and a, a, a rather large ring structure um, from the launch. And apparently he was just walking to his observatory to set things up when he saw it in the sky and looked out his camera and got an image of this. So it's a very... Because uh, of the uh, way the probe uh, um, countdown was uh, changed uh, uh, by one day, it uh, made uh, predicting where it would go, go in the sky a little bit harder. So it was quite a serendipitous capture of the stage separation above the Queensland skies, which is rather cool. 
Um, the other interesting thing, you know, I mentioned uh, Comet Lovejoy coming very close to the sun. On the uh, Parker Solar Probe, there's a camera called a WISP, which is uh, basically the H1 camera uh, on the stereo spacecraft um, that, that have been monitoring the, uh, the, the uh, sun in stereo until H1B uh, decided to, uh, uh, or stereo B, uh, lost contact with Earth. When the stereo spacecraft first opened the cover on the uh, H1 imager, the first thing it saw was the uh, 2006 uh, comet Lovejoy, the, the, that fantastic comet that uh, uh, screamed across our skies with uh, something like a third of the horizon taken up with its tail. So equivalent camera on the Parker Solar Probe. It's not identical to the H1, but it's basically the grandchild of H1 in design and organisation. Well, what we will see with, with uh, the WISP instrument uh, is going to be very, very interesting indeed, but sadly it's unlikely to be as dramatic as seeing the then Comet Lovejoy zooming past its camera as the first thing you see. Fantastic. Later in this episode, Ian, I'm going to be talking about Eugene Parker, the 91-year-old, the person for whom this spacecraft is named. So it's a wonderful story all round. Apparently, when he first submitted this paper about predicting the solar wind, it was rejected by two editors. But uh, the famous lead editor of the, of the journal was Chassandraka of the black hole fame and he's overrode and said publish this and that's a kind, kind of really good little linkage there fantastic yeah okay well very good well thank you very much in astroblog musgrove thank you very much friend for sharing our skies with us catch you later bye bye and here's our news roundup as Ian mentioned earlier, NASA's Parker Solar Probe was launched last week. The Parker Solar Probe will fly straight through the wispy edges of the corona, or outer solar atmosphere, that was visible during last August's total solar eclipse in America. It eventually will get within 6 million kilometres of the sun's surface, staying comfortably cool despite the extreme heat and radiation, and allowing scientists to explore the sun in a way never before possible. The 91-year-old namesake, Eugene Parker, attended the launch, and after a delayed takeoff, for the second straight day, thousands of spectators jammed the launch site in the middle of the night as well as surrounding towns, including 91-year-old astrophysicist Eugene Parker, for whom the spacecraft is named. He proposed the existence of solar wind, a steady supersonic stream of particles blasting off from the sun 60 years ago. It was the first time NASA named a spacecraft after someone still alive, and Parker wasn't about to let it take off without him. I'm just so glad to be here with him, said NASA's science mission chief, Thomas Zerbuchin. Frankly, there's no other name that belongs on this mission. It was the first rocket launch ever witnessed by Parker, 
Professor Emeritus at the University of Chicago, he came away impressed, saying it was like looking at a Taj Mahal for years in photos and then beholding the real thing in India. I really have to turn from biting my nails and getting it launched to thinking about all the interesting things which I don't know yet and which will be made clear, I assume, over the next five or six or seven years, Parker said on NASA TV. The Delta IV heavy rocket thundered into the pre-dawn darkness, thrilling onlookers for miles around and around the world on NASA TV. NASA needed the mighty 23-storey rocket plus a third stage to get the Parker probe, the size of a small car and well under a tonne, racing towards the sun. From Earth, it's 150 million kilometres to the sun and the Parker probe will be within 4% of that distance. Parker will start shattering records this autumn. On its very first brush with the sun, it will come within 26 million kilometres, easily beating the current record by NASA's Helios 2 spacecraft in 1976. By the time Parker gets to its 22nd orbit of the sun, it will be even deeper in the corona and travelling at a record-breaking 690 kilometres an hour. Nothing from planet Earth has ever hit that kind of speed. We're really looking forward to watching the science that comes out of the Parker Solar Probe. That report was from abc.net.au. And some great news from Arecibo, Arecibo, the observatory in Puerto Rico. They are getting $5.8 million to improve the massive radio telescope that was damaged by a cyclone recently. The $5.8 million grant from the National Science Foundation will pay for the design and installation of a super-sensitive antenna for the 1,000-foot diameter dish. Francisco Cordova, site director and engineer at Arecibo, said the grant will help ensure the observatory remains a leader in radio astronomy. It's an advanced cryogenic L-band phase array camera called LPACA, and it will be particularly important for them to maintain their work in radio astronomy around the world. The main function of the receiver is to look for pulsars, fast radio bursts, and gravitational waves, but that's not all. Another part of our capabilities is to also search for any signal that might be different or unknown while we do the science tasks, said Cordova. And that is how we support the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. The antenna is scheduled for installation in 2022. And as a follow-up from Astrophys 58 back in May, where we spoke with Dr. Jesse Christensen, who was flying with tests to a billion planets, there's more great news. After 28 days of precision positioning, the first orbit data download has happened and it's now been put out and it's available to the public. So the search for those first billion planets is well and truly on the way. We look forward to the first announcements 
that will soon emerge from that data release. See you in two weeks. Ready now,